Grab your Bibles, guys, and um, let's get back to work. Um, Before you find Matthew 13, let me tell you two quick things. Um, These are all over the pews, and you know that this is the last Sunday before nominations cease. Um, You are the nominating committee, not the elders, you, the congregation. You nominate and you elect the men who lead this church. This is the vehicle by which you nominate uh, you've gotten to the 31st, but this is probably the last time I will see many of you because you don't come on Wednesday nights, shame on you. Um, but um, uh, you can give them to me. You can put them in the repository. The offering plate has already passed by. So this is the day that you need to do this if, if you feel like there's a man. And then the new members class. Don't forget that there is a new members class this afternoon. Um, there are only four. This is the last one of the year. Uh, you're not obligated to join the church after you've completed the new members class, but it is a mandatory step. So keep that in mind. This afternoon, 345, um, come see us. Guys, we're in Matthew 13, and we have already looked at two parables in Matthew 13. We've looked at the parable of the sower, and we looked at the parable of the weeds. Um, But there are six other parables in this chapter alone um, I, I told you way back when we started this series on the beginning introductory sermon to the series on parables that, um, that I wouldn't be able to do them all, that I would have to be selective. And the reason that I have to be selective is because I didn't want a, a one-year-long series to turn into a two-year-long series. Um, a one-year-long series might be longer than many of you wanted, but I, I'll let you uh, be the judge of that. But this morning, um, I have combined two parables. They're different parables, yes. But I think you'll see that as as I read them and as I preach them, I think you'll see that the theme of these two parables is the same. And that theme of these two parables is simply this. The worth of the kingdom. Now, you follow as I read that which is inerrant, infallible, inspired. It's the, very, it's the very mind of God as expressed in black words on a white page. I'm starting at verse 44 and we'll finish at verse 46. Here we go. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God That endures forever. Guys, this is the first parable where Jesus speaks directly, exclusively, and only to his disciples. We're told that in verse 36 of chapter 13. And that's important. It's important for this reason. He is telling his own that this is how they are supposed to think. This is, this is preeminently how the one who belongs to Jesus Christ is to think. 
not so much as how they're to live or, or how, what they're to do. He is, he is telling them how, something about how they should be thinking. Gang, there's a statement in Philippians 2 where, where the exhortation is, have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Well, this is a description. These two parables are a description of at least a part of the way that you and I, as people who belong to Jesus Christ, are to think. Now, let's take a quick look at the two parables themselves. Uh, I want to point out some things in the parables themselves. And, and then we'll try to, um, to understand what it is that these parables are confronting us with. Um, there are some similarities and there are some dissimilarities between the two parables. Let's, let's start with the dissimilarities. Uh, one of the parables is about a peasant. He's about a, a, a common laborer who is working in another man's field. The other parable is about a merchant. Um, uh, he, he's a business owner. He's a man of means. That's, that's a difference in these two parables. Um, another thing is that one of them stumbles upon the treasure while the other is diligently seeking a treasure. One of the parables says that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. The other parable says that the kingdom is like a merchant seeking a treasure. Those are, those are dissimilarities in the two parables. But those aren't particularly important or even relevant to, um, to our purposes this morning. But the similarities are relevant and important to what we're trying to establish this morning. Let me, let me point out four similarities in these two, par- two, these two parables. First of all, both of these parables are about the kingdom of heaven. Um, both of these parables are describing a man who finds a treasure of incomparable worth. Another similarity is that both of these men form an opinion of the worth about what, <coughs> about the worth of what they have found. And then in the case of the pearl, you would uh, think that many had um, seen this pearl before, but either didn't recognize its value or thought the cost too high. But these two men find a treasure and, and evaluate its worth. And then finally, fourthly, um, another thing that's similar about these parables is that their conduct is the same. They both go out and sell everything so that they can have possession of this thing that they define uh, with such, as having such value. Um, the, the, the cost is the same in both of these parables, um, but no cost is too high for them, even though the cost is everything. Um, others might uh, look at what they've done and think they're crazy. But that doesn't matter to them. They don't, they don't discuss the price. They don't haggle over the price. It doesn't matter what the price is. They must have this treasure. Now, guys, so the, the, the one central thought or the one central theme in both of these parables is that the kingdom of heaven is of inestimable value. And that kingdom is to be sought above everything else. Even if seeking it means I must dispense with everything that I have. These two parables form a picture 
a picture of, of kingdom men. Uh, they form a picture of reckless abandonment. Not so much a reckless sacrifice, ladies and gentlemen. This isn't about self-sacrifice. This is about self-examination. This is, a, this is not about renunciation as it is about a, a, a re-evaluation. This is a portrait. These two parables are giving us a portrait of consummate sanity. People, men of the kingdom are like this. And I, and I want you to notice, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you'll see this very, very pointedly, that the, the, the emphasis in both of these parables is very positive. There, there's, the, the emphasis is on the joy and, and the excitement of, of, of having th- this treasure. The only thing that is negative in these two parables is, is the worthlessness of that which is jettisoned, the, the junk, the, the yuck that I get rid of so that I can have this. Had you interviewed these two men, you wouldn't have found them talking like this. Oh, it's, it was tough. Yeah, it was really, really tough. But, uh, but you know, I went ahead and did it anyway. But it was tough. No, ladies and gentlemen. They, they would be talking about their excitement, their joy, the, the word sacrifice would have dropped out of their vocabularies as they have grown overwhelmed with the value of the thing that was now theirs. So, what are these two little parables about? With what do they confront us? Their one central message, ladies and gentlemen, is the incalculable value of the kingdom of God. What is this kingdom? The kingdom comes, ladies and gentlemen, whenever and wherever Jesus Christ is king. What is this treasure, this pearl of great price? It is Christ himself. It is Christ and his gift of a forgiving, rescuing, transforming, delivering grace. And and, and, and what these parables argue is that there is nothing more valuable than God's gift of his son And there is nothing more worth celebrating than the redemption that comes in conjunction with that gift. These two little parables are demonstrating, ladies and gentlemen, that if you properly value the treasure, properly value the pearl, it will radically transform Every choice, every decision, every piece of behavior that you face. 
it is going to transform you in all of your everyday life when this treasure is properly valued. You cannot properly value the kingdom and go on with this self-centered, money-driven, overscheduled, thing-oriented way of living that is normal for most people. You cannot properly value grace and have your celebration of the pursuit of that grace be relegated to the time that you have left over in a schedule that is already fully booked in the pursuit of another kingdom. If you properly value this treasure, it will become the organizing principle of your life. It will determine how you spend your time. It will determine how you spend your money. It will determine how you spend your energies. And it will rearrange your schedule a schedule that is devoted of pursuing another kingdom. It will form a new way of thinking about your possessions. It will shape your relationships. It will shape your leisure time. It will reform your, your relationship to your church. And it will fill your heart with joy as it turns your life upside down. But I must hasten to make this confession, and perhaps you should too. I don't always properly value the treasure that is Jesus and his grace. To my grief and to my sorrow, I am still in possession of a fickle heart. My heart wanders, and because it does, so do my eyes and so does my wallet. I spend money on things that I don't really need. I envy what other people have and wish I had it. And my, my low-grade discontentment is a dead giveaway about how far off base I am. There are moments when I am not satisfied. I am restless. I'm disappointed. And I simply want more. Even though I already have much, much more than I need. This, this joy, this, this joy of having a pearl of great price, this joy of having Jesus, that somehow has eluded me. Why? 
Well, let me try to explain by telling you about a book. It was a book that first came into the public in 1677. It was written by a man who was a Scottish theologian who died at the age of 28. His book was very influential. Influential because it influenced John Wesley and George Whitfield, both of whom led the Great Awakening in the colonial United States. The book was written by a man by the name of Henry Scougal. And the title of his book was The Life of God and the Soul of Man. And to, to summarize his book in a, in a couple of sentences is just not fair, but it's, it's all that we have time for. And, and I'm going to paraphrase. But I want to tell you the basic message of his book. And you need to hear it. The basic message of the book was this. That the health of the soul is determined by the value of what it loves. Don't miss that. You've got to get that. The health of the soul is determined by the value of the objects which it loves. To love the trivial is to sicken the soul. To have lesser loves is to degrade yourself and to invite illness, spiritual illness. And so now you know. Now you know why all of us are constantly battling this low-grade disappointment this low-grade discontentment, this restlessness. We are caught up in this endless consumerism. We're restless and exhausted thinking, thinking one more fling or, or one more vacation or, or, or one more upgrade or, 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 or one more pay raise or, or one more house will finally quiet the inner urge for more. And it will, it will finally push us over the edge of anxiety into a life of tranquility. Only to be disappointed. Over and over and over again. Let me give you one example out of dozens that I could have used. You know, a lot of us, many of us, have spent 25 years raising our kids. We were all in as parents. And we have raised kids who in many ways have done nothing but disappoint us. I'm not saying that your kids are bad. I'm only saying what Henry Skugel said when he said the health of the soul is determined by the value of what it loves to love the trivial is to sicken the soul well I mean wait a minute Dr. Young I mean, I mean, I mean Dr. Young are you, uh, are, are you saying that, uh, that our kids are trivial 
Yes. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying that compared to the pearl of great price, they are trivial. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't think I'm the only one in this room to agree that we're sick. You and I are sick. We're sick and we're restless and we're disappointed and we're disillusioned. And it's because we valued created things at the expense of the cosmically valuable. The objects of our love have sickened our souls. We have looked at the pearl of great price and we have kept on walking. Guys, if I'm a Christian, if, if, if I'm a Christian, then Jesus Christ has, has invaded my life by his grace. He has done for me what I could not do for myself. His grace has provided a rescue that the law, that the Ten Commandments could not provide. He has lavished on me a love that I could never in my most delusional moments think that I deserve. He does not turn his back on me even in my most arrogant and rebellious moments. He never mocks my weaknesses or throws my sin back into my face. He is faithful to me when I don't have the sense to be faithful to him. He fights for me in, in, in my most in, in moments when, when I'm too lazy to fight for myself. And he will not quit doing all of that until his work of grace in me is complete. The gift of that treasure to me is the stunning reality of my existence. The eternal significance of what Jesus Christ has done for me defies human vocabulary. And yet, I don't always see it that way. I don't always think like that. My heart still wanders. My need of grace is so profound that I need grace in order to properly value the grace that I need. Guys, here, here's what's important about all of this. Our problems of dissatisfaction and low-grade discontentment, our problems with consumerism and materialism and all of that does not begin with, with an over-evaluating of the physical world, the created world. No, no. Our problems in those areas, our problems with money, 
is rooted in a dramatic undervaluing of the gift of Jesus Christ and his grace to us. It is only when King Jesus is given the proper place in our hearts that king money will neither have the power nor the room to rule it, and neither will any other king, like king sex or king kids or or king career. You know, it, it, it seems to me that the church's message to its constituency about our self-centered, over-scheduled, money-driven, things-oriented life. It seems that our message is something where we're asking the law to do what only grace can accomplish. We tell our people that, you know, you need to, <coughs> you need to go write a budget. Well, guys, a budget can expose what your heart truly values. But a budget has no power to make you worship the right king. A budget can give you useful spending guidelines, but it has no power to restrain your fickle and wandering heart. A budget can make you very much more money aware, but it cannot deliver you from the temptation to keep on buying more. Ladies and gentlemen, there's only one solution. And that solution is vertical. It begins by repenting of living that self-centered, over-scheduled, thing-oriented, money-driven life that is the norm out there. And often in here. We must beg God for more grace to have this mind in us that was also in Christ Jesus. We beg him to allow us to taste the sweetness of the gospel over and over again. We beg him to heal our fractured hearts. You know, guys, this, this holy compulsion to sell it all, that, that compulsion must come from within. There's no law on the outside that can compel us to do this. The worth of this treasure... That can only be ascertained by grace. And many of us see the treasures of the kingdom. And we keep on walking. Ladies and gentlemen, if you value these things, the reason that you value them at all is God has given you eyes to see. He has granted you grace. And we are in need of more. 
I have a friend who was in a lot of trouble several years ago. I mean, he was in big criminal trouble, big serious trouble. He saw what the rest of us would seek, uh, the, the best attorney that he could find, made an appointment, told the attorney his story, and the attorney listened and looked at my friend, and he said, my fee will be, and the fee was enormous. I mean, we're talking six figures enormous. My friend gulped and and complained about the size of the fee. The attorney leaned over the desk and asked my friend, just how much is your life worth to you? My friend thought about it a minute. And then he gladly paid the fee. Tell me, ladies and gentlemen, how much is this kingdom worth to you? How much is grace worth to you? How much is, how much is forgiveness worth to you? How much is heaven worth to you? Apparently, for many of us, not very much. I think a lot of you know that um, my wife and I were in Europe this summer, and we were there for three weeks, and one of, one of our privileges while I was there is that I got invited to preach at a small little church in Munich, Germany. Um, we arrived on a Friday night, and we had Saturday pretty much to ourselves, and, and I was to preach the next day. And um, on that Saturday that we had to ourselves, we, um, we decided that there was a, a tourist attraction that we wanted to see. It's called Dachau. You ever heard of Dachau? Dachau was a prison camp in World War II. It was, uh, I think the Germans had like 40 of those camps, but we had already been to one. We've already been to Auschwitz in Poland, but we were real close to Dachau, and so we wanted to see Dachau, and it was hard to find. I mean, you had to get on a train and go out there and get off the right exit, and, and we were talking to these Germans, and they were laughing at us, and you know, they finally said, get off, you fat bozo. So we, um, we got off, and sure enough, we got off the right place, and there was buses, and they took us out to Dachau. And, um, and actually, it was a whole lot prettier than, than Auschwitz. Auschwitz was dark and dingy. And, but Dachau was out in the middle of this big field. I mean, it must have been 50 acres, 100 acres. I don't know. It was just a big field. It was probably closer to 100 acres. It was a big... And um, there was no trees. And it, was just, it was hot that day. It was, it was just pretty and hot. And, but you, um, you walk in there, and they've, they've got places marked with signs with has explanations on them and you stop and you read those and and then you go in the buildings where the Jews were confined and where the scientific experiments were conducted they show you these rooms and, 
And then uh, you pass through these rooms, you walk down these halls, and, and they've, got, uh, they've, got a, they've got pictures of things that you don't even want to see. And then they've got statements by some of the prisoners and, and explanations and descriptions and what this German did and what that guy did. And, and you can't walk in those halls, ladies and gentlemen, without being impacted in some measure. But one of the quotes was by Corey Tinboom. You remember her? She was a little Dutch girl, you know, that was um, uh, sent to prison with, along with her family because they hid Jews in um, Amsterdam. No, no, it wasn't Amsterdam. It's outside of Amsterdam. Um, but while she was in the prison, in the concentration camp, she said this. She said, this darkness is very deep, but our God has gone deeper still. Now listen, when you have been to Calvary, even Dachau, look small. Ladies and gentlemen, when you think about the darkness, the depth of the darkness to which God has gone to save undeserving sinners like us, tell me, How much is that worth to you? Our Father, I I do pray that you will remind us of the grace that is so much greater than our sin. Of a Savior who um, met every requirement that was asked of me, he met. And every debt that I owed, he paid. The Savior who lived the life that I was supposed to do, but I didn't. And then he died the death that I should have died, but I haven't. And I pray that you will help all of your people reevaluate. And that we might find the joy the joy of knowing that we're in possession of a pearl of great price. Father, if you've led people here who have not yet met Jesus Christ or still not yet redeemed, would you give them eyes to see the beauty of what so many of us have seen, the beauty of Christ, beauty of Christ crucified on behalf of sinners. Do that, Father, and give us the privilege of watching you do it. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.